So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nathaniel. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're actually in the final week of our preaching series called The Air We Breathe, which is based on a book of the same name by Glenn Scrivener. And it's looking at the ways in which um, Christian values have had a profound effect for the positive on Western culture. And we've looked at subjects like equality and shame and sexuality and had a look at the values that we hold as Christians and how Christianity is the air we breathe in our culture and our society in the way that it's helped to shape our modern understanding and the sorts of things that we take for granted. At the very beginning of our series, Rich shared this picture, uh, which, you know, how's the water, what's water? You know, that kind of idea that fish don't know what water is because that is their environment. They swim in it every day and so have no concept of water. It just is the thing that's all around them. They don't see the water they're swimming in. And in the same way, we can sometimes miss the ways in which Christianity has shaped our culture. And the hope through this series was to help highlight some of these things and how understanding our culture can help us in how we talk uh, to that culture about Jesus. Uh, English historical author Tom Holland wrote a book called Dominion, which is quite a weighty read, uh, but it charts the history of Christianity and its influence on the West. And in it, he said, for a millennium and more, the civilization into which I had been born was Christendom. Assumptions that I had grown up with about how society should be properly organized and the principles that it should uphold were not bred of classical antiquity, still less of human nature, but very distinctively of that civilization's Christian past. So profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of the Western civilization that it's come to be hidden from view. In a West that is often doubtful of religious claims, uh, so many of its instincts remain, for good or ill, thoroughly Christian. So it's this water that we swim in in our culture. And today we're looking at another subject, and this time it's the subject of consent and the personal freedoms and rights that we have to enjoy and how uh, the value that we hold on that has its roots in Christianity. And personal freedoms do rule in our culture with consent at the heart, and our own personal rights and freedoms are the culture in which we swim. And that's a good thing, but we're going to explore this topic in a little bit more detail today and have a look at how the idea of consent can be found right at the heart of the gospel. Now, when we talk about it today, I want to try and give the broadest possible view of consent and how it's outworked in society. And when we mention the word consent, I'm, not sh- I'm sure I'm not the only one that kind of immediately jumps to those worst-case scenarios rela- relating to, to sex, and, and certainly that does feature. But consent issues are at play in all sorts of ways, whether it's an abuse of power by governments or bosses, the use of image rights and data online, or even the bureaucracy of risk assessments and consent forms that you have to fill out before you do anything nowadays. We're a society that values consent. How many people right now, on their person or in their bag, have a smartphone? Got a smartphone on you? Right, keep your hand up if you've read the terms and conditions of that smartphone. No, no one. You get to the button, don't you? Oh, they've changed their terms. Consent, I'll consent to that. Absolutely fine. No trouble at all. Or do you recognize the picture up there of the traffic lights? Have you ever been on a website and it's asked you to find all the the boxes that have got a traffic light in? That's a system called Capture. And did you know that, so you've, you've normally got to press a button at the bottom that says, I'm not a robot, right? To prove that you're not a robot and that you're actually trying to legitimately get to the content that you want to get to. Now, would you believe that the internet already knows that you're not a robot? Uh, But actually, this is a hidden form of consent 
There used to be a form that said, do you consent to this website reviewing your data? And of course, everybody clicked no, because nobody wants to consent to their data being reviewed. So what they did instead was create this fun little game. And so whilst you're ticking all the boxes that's, that where the traffic lights are, you're actually giving that website consent to go through your data anyway. So that's what's actually happening when you're clicking these boxes. Nobody ever thought that we were robots. And actually, robots can probably cap, get, get past those sorts of forms nowadays anyway. But it's another form, it's another way of, of us sneakily being being given uh, or, or uh, told that we have to give consent for things. And we consent in hundreds of different ways every day. As you drove here, if you drove in your car, likely you consented to the traffic laws, stopped at red lights, let other cars through as you passed as you got here to church. I took the kids to Splashdown yesterday, uh, went on all the water slides. Uh, it was uh, because they got a good report, and that's what they chose as their treat for getting a good school report. And I almost instantly regretted consenting to the safety notice that was on the wall. Uh, by, by reading this safety notice, you agree that you won't sue us uh, if you get whiplash on one of our slides. And that's exactly what happened. So as I was going down one of the really fast slides, the first thing I did was crick my neck around a corner. So if I'm not looking at you in the eye today, or if, I haven't, if my eye line doesn't quite reach the back row, it's because I can't quite lift my head to, hello. <laughs> Nice to see you all. Uh, so consent is, is, is an issue that's everywhere. And it's also very much an issue that we feel the weight of when consent is taken and not given. And there have been some really notable examples in the news just over the last few weeks. We can think of people like David Carrick, who was the Met Police officer who significantly abused his power and abused consent over many years as he took advantage of women in his role as a serving police officer. It captured the public gaze, and rightly so. Or you might uh, recognize the issue of consent that was also raised with uh, reality television. Uh, I would use the word celebrity, but I'm not sure. But the chap in the fur coat there, uh, who uh, is named Stephen Bear, and he was jailed for sharing naked images of a former girlfriend on social media without her consent. It could be issues of Harvey Weinstein in Hollywood and all of the abuses that were suffered there. And unfortunately, I can cite far too many high-profile examples of power and consent that's been abused. And we also see that in the way that consent is given when it comes to sex in our society. We are a society that is obsessed by sex. And as you walk around and have a look at the advertising that's on our television screens and billboards, it's easy to see. And it's not uncommon at all for people to have had multiple sexual partners. The rise in apps like Tinder, where you can swipe and order uh, uh, um, sex uh, you, you know, in, in the way that we, that we do, it's, it's given to this rise of promiscuity and ev easily given consent. People give consent for their naked images to be shared to the world on the internet with a rise of pornography and technology, meaning that children as young as 10 are now more likely than not to have seen a sexual image, which is shocking, isn't it? But the Bible and God has a higher view of sex, a higher view of body, a higher view of relationships, and a higher view of consent, and that's a really good thing. And we need that higher view too. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Christianity has this profound view on the way in which consent is thought about. It's at the very heart of the gospel, this idea of equality. Think about John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus won't perish but has eternal life. We have the equal right to believe and not perish. Young or old, rich or poor, the call is the same and our response is the same too. We then live for a different purpose with the Holy Spirit inside us to help to make us more like Jesus. And if the Holy Spirit is in us, and as we're told, our bodies are then like temples, it's right that we should have a profound care as Christians and as a society about what happens to them and that idea of consent. 
But it wasn't always that way. And throughout history, we've seen countless examples of times where consent wasn't given any consideration at all. We could flick in our Bibles to the New Testament and have a look at the culture of the Roman Empire. A quick glance in our history books shows us that it has this kind of significant class system that attributed worth to the most wealthy. If you, if you were of high status in that society, then it was your right to have sex with anyone in your household, whether uh, they were your wife or a slave or a servant. Consent wasn't an issue in this society because they didn't view it in the same way that we do. If you were of lower status, then you simply didn't have the same rights in society or even to your own body as someone of a higher status. And now I haven't got time to go into this fully, but two writers have summarized really clearly the issue um, that presented itself in the Roman Empire. The first is Glenn Scrivener in his book, The Air We Breathe, and in it he said, our modern concept of sexual abuse would be nonsensical to a freeborn Roman man since he considered that he held an unquestioned right to the bodies of lower status women, children, prostitutes, slaves. Kyle Harper also wrote, it would be impossible to overstate the decisive influence of the social position in the determination of the sexual boundaries in the Roman Empire. So there's a, a significant issue and the difference in the way that we view things based on our society and, and, the, and the context that we're in. We might, when it comes to consent, think of issues of slavery, and there's, there's some, some slightly more modern examples there. As a, la, as a life group last term, we had a movie night, and uh, one of the things that we did during our movie night was get loads of popcorn out, loads of bean bags and comfy chairs, and we watched this film, Amazing Grace, which is kind of uh, telling of the, the true story of the abolition of the slave trade and how this Christian chap called William Wilberforce, he was an MP in Parliament, and he was influenced by the gospel and labored to see slavery outlawed, become uh, outlawed in the UK. And it's this, it's this absolutely amazing story of how he was just totally captivated by God and on a mission to see it happen. If you haven't seen it, it's an incredible watch, and it even tells the story of John Newton, uh, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, a version of which we just sang this morning. And he had this amazing, incredible turnaround from slave ship captain to church pastor because of the way that God arrested his heart and helped him to see people with the same heart as God sees them. Rather than sailing slave ships, he became a big advocate for abolishing slavery and became the hymn writer that I guess we know him for now. So whether it's in the historic Roman Empire or the abuses through slavery, the past is littered with cultures that don't view consent through the same lens as we do. And that's really, really heartbreaking, isn't it? But into the culture of the Roman Empire and sending shockwaves throughout history that moved people like William Wilberforce and John Newton into action came Jesus, the Son of God, who was there to disrupt culture. And as Christians, we know that Jesus cuts to the heart of consent by reframing our social order. There's no status that's more worthwhile than the status we receive as Christians through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 verse 26 to 28 puts it this way. In Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed, uh, clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. We're all one in Christ Jesus. When we read our Bibles and verses such as this one, we, just, we, we read and understand the equality that we receive through our identity in Jesus. We're all one. We're all children of God. There's no class system here. We're all the same. We get given the same rights, the same identity. It's a beautiful story that we get told through the gospel. And there are many examples I could cite where Christianity has brought about a cultural revolution through preaching the gospel of Jesus. 
and preaching a different message to that of the world. And I'm going to give one example just to help frame our thinking. And I got this example from the book, The Weirdest People in the World. It was a book that Matt referenced when he was preaching here last week. And WEIRD is an acronym that stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And it basically argues that us lot in the West, we're kind of a little bit weirder than a lot of other people because we've grown up and we've grown up around these sorts of values. And in the Roman world and in much of society, even existing in some parts of the world today, relationships are unequally weighted towards those of a higher status. So those with a greater wealth and stature get their pick of, uh, pick of the, the meat, get their pick of the women, get their pick of the money, get their pick of the jobs. And the lower in status are, are often not afforded those rights and could very well end up wifeless and childless and frustrated by the inequality of it all. And Christianity's influence in honoring marriage in society and monogamous marriage is something that's focused on in this book. Um, it's a weird characteristic that's picked up, this idea of monogamy, that in many societies um, through history, the one husband and one wife model that we would call a monogamous relationship has actually been quite weird. Where what happened through Christianity is there's this kind of great equaling that comes by preaching the gospel of Jesus and preaching this kind of monogamous marriage that comes that we see in our scriptures. It changed the status quo in societies where monogamy wasn't the norm. And there were consequences of this. Joseph Henrik, who wrote this book, he explains, firstly, it constrained men from seeking sex outside of marriage, from visiting prostitutes or having mistresses. To accomplish this, the church worked to end prostitution and sexual slavery, which is great. Second, the church made divorce difficult and remarriage close to impossible, which prevented men from engaging in serial monogamy. The church, through its centuries-long struggle to dismantle and enforce its peculiar version of monogamous marriage, created an environment that gradually domesticated men. He also quite humorously said, the church, through the institution of monogamous marriage, reached down and grabbed men by the testicles, which, there you go. As Henrik also pointed out, the drive applied equally to all levels of society, whether you were a king or whether you were a peasant. This was kind of the first step on the road to equality. Journey back to your history lessons and think about how hard Henry VIII had to work to get his six wives, right? There was this equality that came through monogamous marriage. It didn't matter if you were the king or who you were, actually. We all play by these same rules, and it was the influence of Christianity that came along and did that. The church prized monogamy because of the way that God speaks about marriage, the way that the Bible talks about marriage, and the beautiful relationship that it paints of security for men and women, as well as the picture it paints of love, of the man and the woman together in a relationship of love, but the wider way that that marriage represents something of love between Christ and the church. So there's just one example there to show that we swim in these waters that are kind of just so well established for us. The idea of monogamous marriage is... is one that kind of we almost take for granted now, but actually in societies around the world, that often isn't the case. And so with it, we kind of swim in these waters of consent, and thank goodness that we do, and that's a really good thing, and Christianity has had a big hand in it. And it also means that we acutely feel the injustice when consent is taken and not given. And it's here that I want to be just really clear, because I'm aware that there might be some in the room who actually feel this issue a little bit personally. So when our right to consent is violated, that is deplorable, and it causes pain, and it causes suffering, and that can last for years or lifetimes. And if you're feeling any sense of that, I just want you to know this morning that God knows. In these moments, God cares about injustice, and we've got a God who fights for justice and deeply cares about his children. When we feel angry about injustice, I do believe, actually, there's something right about that sometimes, that we're expressing something of God's feeling on the situation, too, when we see injustice, when we see abuse, when we see the consent that's taken and not given. Actually, I think 
the anger that we feel in those moments expresses something of God's heart on it as well. But that anger can pollute us unless we give it to God and trust that he's a good father and that he's able to deal with this injustice in a way that we never could. When we see abuse of power or lack of consent, I'm so thankful for the person of Jesus. Because when we're angry, when we see something that's unjust, when we see something that just isn't fair, and we think, I just want punishment for that, I just want blood. Um, When we demand that justice, we know that we've got it through Jesus. The blood that we want in those moments was shed by Jesus on the cross, who brutally took on the sins of the world. The deserved punishment is brutally dished out in that moment, just through a substitute. And actually, if justice wasn't done through Jesus on the cross for the Christian, it will be done on Judgment Day when each person will have to give an account for what they've done and will be rightly and righteously judged for it. Justice will be served, punishment will be dealt. And we can have confidence that this is our God, that he's a God of justice. We can have confidence in our faith because the heart we have to see justice done is, the heart, is at the heart of who God is, who punishes wrongdoing because he's perfect and he's the only one who is justly able to judge the one who satisfies the punishment for wrongdoing. So when we see injustice happen, yeah, we can get angry about it, and yeah, I think actually it's right to, but then we need to turn it to Jesus and understand that actually he has paid for that, that his substitute has paid for it. Now, I'm sure we've all been in conversations where God's kind of been blamed when injustice has happened as well. How could a good God allow suffering to happen? If God loves us, then why was there slavery? Why are there abuses of power if God loves us? The writer C.S. Lewis, who wrote a number of books that I'm sure we're all aware of, The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe, and many others as well, had the same question. And in his words, he said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. What I was comparing the universe to, what was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? And in the book, The Air We Breathe, which uh, we based this preaching series on, Glenn Scrivener says of this quote, if there was no such thing as a straight line, there would be no such thing as a crooked line either. Lines would simply be lines and stuff would simply happen. But we know crooked when we see it and we know evil when we see it as well. Christianity strikes to the heart of our knowledge of good and evil. God's justice gives us the framework, the yardstick, against which we, we measure justice. So when we see issues of justice and issues of consent and issues of abuse, we measure it against the framework set out by a loving God who gives us dignity and who gives us identity. We know and we can identify and get angry when we see evil precisely because a good God exists and he sent his son to bring justice about. And ultimately, it matters that Jesus died to take the punishment for what we've done wrong because Jesus consented to share in our humanity. He consented to dying for us to take on this punishment, to bring justice where it's needed. Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8 puts it this way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When we think about Jesus and his death on the cross, we need to remember that he agreed to it, that he embraced it, so that we might know freedom, so that justice could be served, and so that our freedom might be brought about by him on the cross. 
night before Jesus was arrested, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's recorded in Luke 22 as saying, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father to enact God's great rescue plan to make a way for his people to be restored into right relationship with him, and Jesus did so willingly. By submitting to death and rising to defeat it, Jesus broke its power, its power over us, while still allowing justice to be served for wrongdoing. There's actually an old theological term, the condescension of Christ. Anybody heard that term, the condescension of Christ? Very old, archaic term now. It sounds a little strange. We're not talking about the water you find on your windows when you wake up in the morning. In modern usage, the word condescending means patronizing or means to look down on. And it's quite a negative term, but the original meaning when we talk about the condescension of Christ is quite different. It's uh, from the old French, which I've got here, uh, condescendere. You can pick me up on my uh, French pronunciation later if you like. But that word actually means to agree, to consent, to give in, to yield, to come down from one's rights or claims. The act of voluntarily stooping or inclining to an equality with an inferior. This is what Jesus did. He stooped down. He consented. He willingly shared in our humanity and willingly shared in our death in order to break its power. Jesus coming to earth, dying and rising again was his act of condescension, consent, and it was empowering for us. It's empowering that he saved us and rescued us. It's empowering because he's the ultimate example for us, and it's empowering because through life in Christ we find new meaning and care for the world around us as well. So the aim of this preaching series, The Air We Breathe, has been to help you see that Christianity is the air we breathe. It's the culture that's all around us. To help equip you to answer the hard questions that we're being asked in our culture, and to help you to see that the answers provided by Christianity are far more satisfying than anything the world's got to offer. Christianity has got a better message when it comes to consent, and it's grounded in the person of Jesus who consented to stoop down to us to come and rescue and save us. And it's my hope that this series has been helpful in giving us courage to talk about Jesus as the answer that society is looking for, that a life lived with Jesus and the good example that he brings for living life is better and more fulfilling than anything that society would have us believe. There's a journalist who writes for The Spectator. Her name's Louise Perry, and she wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She said, she said once, we may be in a post-Christian culture, but only just. It's still in the waters. As Christians, we need to appeal to the waters, and I think we can do so unashamedly. As I've been speaking today, I've actually been quoting from a number of contemporary writers who aren't Christian. People like Louise Perry or Tom Holland, or you might have been inspired by other non-Christians and their kind of view of the world. And actually, the one thing that I've found quite surprising is that a lot of these non-Christian voices are actually advocating for thoroughly Christian values nowadays. Realizing that some of the teachings of Christianity are actually good for society, Louise Perry said that it was the fruit of stepping on a thousand rakes. Uh, it's quite a funny language, and if you've ever seen the gif with uh, Sideshow Bob there, where he just over and over again steps on rakes, you get the idea. It's this sense that actually we've tried and failed, and we've tried and failed, and we've tried and failed, and we've tried and failed. And a lot of the time, we're coming back to the conclusion that, um, that the old ways are the best ones. Um, the fact is, behind it, is that God instructs us to live in a certain way, and that the way that we live, this it isn't a restriction, but it's for our good. Society has been told 
uh, has told us to live by a different set of morals, and ultimately, they're being found to be empty. And actually, some of the morals that we see through Christianity are the waters in which we swim. These people and many others have appealed to the Christian morals, which is encouraging, but have done it without the Christ bit. And essentially, if you appeal to Christian morals, but without Christ, that's just moralism, and that's no better either. Without Christ, it doesn't make sense, because it's in the person of Jesus that we get our example. It's where we get our paradigm. Without it, it's a little bit like looking up at the moon at night and spending your entire life looking at the moon and writing about the moon and theorizing about the moon, but never, never doing so with the context of the earth. So if you were to spend your life studying the moon in isolation to understand it, you, you might actually be quite confused because you're missing the thing that it's inextricably linked to. You might look at the moon in isolation and wonder why it isn't free or it's got all that space around it. Why is it keeping in the certain orbit that it does? What's keeping it there? Why doesn't it just kind of move around more freely than it, than it does? Why does it hold to this same pattern? You might theorize that there must be something keeping it there. What is it that's kind of keeping the moon doing what it does day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? It's only in the full context that the structures of the universe make sense. The moon only truly makes sense when you've got the earth to ground it. And so when you look at the, earth, uh, the moon in relation to the earth and gravity and the way that the universe is held together, all of a sudden the moon makes sense. And we need that context. And Jesus makes the context of our society make sense because Jesus preached a radical change in society. It's the upside-down kingdom of God where the weak are strong, where absolute equality exists in that we all, no matter who you are and where you were born, male or female, have fallen short of the glory of God. But we are all equally loved by God. And we all have the equal opportunity to be saved and become children of God through the person of Jesus. It's in Jesus that we find true life, and it's here that all other meaning makes sense. It's the context in which we live. Our life with Jesus helps to make sense of how we feel and view the world, why consent and equality matters so much to us, and how Jesus, by consenting to die on the cross in our place, provides the answer that culture is looking for. It's only when we see it in the context that everything else makes sense. The Christian response is more satisfying than what the world has to offer. Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23 say this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Where society preaches freedom through promiscuity and no limits exercise of free will that leaves people on the endless chase for empty life experiences or money or power or whatever it might be, the Christian life pre uh, preaches a freedom that's marked by patience and peace and faithfulness and self-control. As Christians, we live for something more meaningful than a fleeting experience. It's not about notches on the bedpost, money in the bank, or gathering as much power as we can. And that's an incredibly honoring thing for all of humanity because we've got the kind of the, the real prize um, awaiting us. We've got the real prize. So we know what it is. It's Jesus. And the prizing of consent issues through self-control and true love and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness is a far more worthy prize. Ultimately, a life lived with Jesus brings us freedom because he bought it for us. And if you've ever experienced times where consent or power has been abused, he's also brought justice for that as well. So I want to kind of draw us back into, into a time of worship, actually, and into a time of responding. 
If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you're still skeptical about the claims that Christianity makes, then I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to listen to me today, that you've, uh, you've sat and listened. And I, I truly do believe that a life lived with Jesus is the most fulfilling one that we can have. And I'd love to talk to you more about it. If you want to come find me at the end and uh, chat to me or if you've got any questions about anything that's been raised through this series or this morning, then that'd be a pleasure. And as we come back and sing, as we come back to worship, I want to point us back to Jesus. As I said, I'm so grateful that he consented to dying in our place so that we can be in a relationship with him now and for all eternity. God loves us so much that he made a way through his son for us to be with him, taking on the punishment for wrongdoing so that we can enjoy that freedom of relationship. So let's enjoy that freedom of relationship as we come back into worship and be thankful for the person of Jesus, the context in which all other things make sense. I'd also love to pray with you if you felt stirred by anything I've said today when it comes to issues of injustice, for justice that we perceive has not been dealt with in our own lives, for times that we've been wronged or hurt. In those moments, we can also look to Jesus and trust that he can bring us comfort and that he has and that he will bring justice where injustice has taken place. And I'd love to pray for that as well. So uh, why don't you stand with me? We'll invite the band back. Let's just give thanks to Jesus and then look again on the person of Jesus and all that he's done for us. Father, I do thank you that you love us so much, so much, that you, ha- you made a way to deal with wrongdoing, that you made a, d- a way to deal with anything that separates us from you. And you did that through the person of Jesus, your son. You did that through Jesus, who willingly consented to come to earth, to live a perfect life, to die and to rise again, defeating death's power, so that we can be free from it as well and free to enjoy relationship with you now and for all eternity. Lord, we know we live in a a world that is broken, a world that's fallen, a world that still experiences sin. And Lord, for those who are hurting here today, I do want to pray that they would know something of your justice for those issues, something of your peace in those moments, and that you'd help each one of us now to lift our eyes to the person of Jesus the context through which all else makes sense and to give thanks and to give you glory for what you've done for us. In your name I pray. Amen.